I had a, I think, I guess, a well-prepared introduction for a Good Friday devotional. I had it tied into the sermon series we've been going through, through Mark's gospel. I thought how beautifully Mark 1 through 8 sets us up for Good Friday, particularly the last few chapters we had been studying, where the parable of the sower reminds us that even if it looks like things are not working out well, that the kingdom of God is not progressing, that maybe God's plans are coming to naught, we don't have to trust in our, what we see, but the faithfulness of the sower, because when the sower continues to sow, there's a super abundant harvest. I think of uh, Mark chapter 6, when we think about how often our fears drive us and how often Jesus reminds his disciples and us to simply have faith, and how often faith is formed in the crucible of the crises that we face in our lives. I thought those just set us up beautifully. What could be more discouraging? What could be more a feeling that God's kingdom is not coming to pass than watching your Lord being crucified on a Roman cross? How, how appropriate those parables would have been to the disciples. And quite frankly, I'm not sure they were actually thinking about those things on that Friday or whatever particular afternoon it probably would have been or time during Friday. And then I decided to change all of that as my family and I have been reading through uh, the events of Passion Week. Maybe it's like some of you, uh, my family and I, as much as we can with three teenagers in the home, we open the scriptures and look at the events that took place that particular day and this morning. As we open to the passages on Friday, I was struck by how deliberate Jesus' crucifixion was and is. And as I reflected on the things I was going to talk about, I began to realize I was probably missing the point. You see, everything I had kind of put together was about our faith, how God comforts us in our despair. And I really realized again, reading the text, that uh, I was doing what we so often do, we make it about us. And while Good Friday was done for us, we would be wide off the mark to think it's about us. It is clear that it's all about Jesus Christ and God's redemptive plan coming to pass. And so at about two o'clock this afternoon, I scrapped everything I had worked on and thought, we're just gonna look at the narrative. I'm gonna make some comments about it, but it's gonna be a little bit more, how should we say, spontaneous. If you wanna follow along, I don't know if you can in the dark. Uh, if you need to use the Pew Bible, it's on page 801. I wanna read for us the crucifixion narrative, the events that took place on that Friday that we call good so long ago, starting in verse 16 of Mark 15. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in, pur in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews, and they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put on his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Verse 21, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. 
And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews, and they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who crucified with him also reviled him. Verse 33, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Verse 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Amazing when you read that text. We read it this morning among other passages of all the events that took place really beginning late last night all the way through this morning. One thing that struck out, stuck out to me as we were reading it was the intentionality of Jesus Christ through this whole thing. You look at the passage in verse 23, when Christ refused the wine with myrrh, you might look at Proverbs 31, verses 6 through 9, and see that it's recommended to give those in misery wine or strong intoxicating drink, somehow dull the senses. Maybe it was to ease his pain. Uh, Maybe it was a mercy act. Maybe it was to mock him, as oftentimes triumphant Roman emperors were given a goblet of wine to celebrate their victory. Whether it was mercy or to mock him, it says that he refused to take the cup. Well, it makes sense why. We just read the night before, he says, I will not take the fruit of the vine again until I am in my Father's kingdom. And in Mark 14, Jesus prayed for this cup to pass but he realized it wouldn't, so the only cup that Jesus would drink would be the cup of God's wrath. He would take no other wine. He would take no other cup, and so he refused it. On his way to be crucified, verse 22 tells us, Josephus, the, um, one of the most uh, accurate historians we have at that time period, he was a, a very kind of a renaissance man, a priest, uh, a soldier. He fought in the Jewish wars. He wrote many volumes recording the events of that time, talked about how much crucifixion was used as a deterrent because it struck fear in the hearts of men and women everywhere. During the siege of Jerusalem, crucifixion was a common sight. He records every day roughly 500 men and boys would be crucified all along the roadways in the most obscure and humiliating positions possible, not just on a cross, upside down in the form of an X, impaled, whatever you could imagine to horrify people, that this would be the price of anyone claiming to be king over Caesar. And this is the fate our Lord faced. As if the crucifixion wasn't enough, it was all the mocking and the deriding that they put upon him. They said, save yourself and come down. 
Instead, Jesus chose to save others and stay up. They said, oh, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Well, he saved others, and he could have saved himself, but if he saved himself, we would all be lost. They said to him, look, come down off the cross. If you are who you say you are, come off of that cross that we've nailed you to, and we will believe. If you've been in our study of Mark, you know what a false line that is. Seeing does not lead to believing, does it? After all, in Mark chapter 3, didn't they see the man with the withered hand be healed instantaneously? And what did Mark say they wanted to do to him? They plotted to kill him. In Mark chapter 5, when they saw what he did in healing the demoniac, what did they do to him? They rejected him and asked him to leave. In Mark chapter 6, when they said, how was he able to do all these mighty works? They still would not believe in him. In John chapter 11, when they saw him raise Lazarus from the grave, they wanted to kill him. How hypocritical that they say, if we see you do this, we would believe when they saw so many works and they believed none of it. You remember what the Bible says to us, that faith comes by hearing and by hearing from the Word of God. What a mockery this whole event was. As if to, to highlight the point, nature itself sees this as a mockery. The passage tells us that it went dark, roughly about noon. We would call that the sixth hour for them was noon for us, noon to the ninth hour, 3 p.m. It went dark as if nature itself was saying, this is not something we are supposed to see. This is a travesty. The king of life being crucified by his own creation is not something we must see. And everything went dark. And he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a part of us that wants to say, no, come on, God doesn't forsake. He was forsaken. Why? Because he bore your sin and my sin, and God abides no sin. And so in some way inexplicable, the Son was separated and forsaken by the Father on the cross, and He felt it. You know, we look at the crucifixion and we think that was the penalty of your sin. That was just a symbol. The real penalty was things we couldn't see, the full wrath of God being poured on Christ, the physical anguish, the excruciating pain. By the way, the word excruciating, it means from the cross. X, from cruciato, the cross. Excruciating means it comes out of the cross. That's how bad it was. That wasn't the true price. The true price was the wrath of God being poured upon him, being separated from him. And he quotes, by the way, the first verse of Psalm 22. I just want to read that psalm to you, written so many years before this event, and you know why Jesus quoted it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, and I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised 
by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help me. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lions. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, melting within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet I count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This was written hundreds, hundreds of years before Jesus' crucifixion. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him, and shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. This is the psalm Jesus cried out, quoting, Eloi, Eloi, labach sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew exactly. This psalm that starts with him being forsaken ends with great praise to God, and that's exactly what happened here. How exactly like his death was Psalm 22. This is no coincidence. And then the very next few verses, verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. John chapter 19, verse 30 tells us what the cry was. It is finished to tell us die. And I'm not sure if it was the raspy sounds of a man's dying breath where he says each word, one labored breath, strength draining effort into it. It is finished. Or if it was the cry of victory, it is finished. Either way, is the last thing he said. And he breathed his last Mark ends this narrative in a very riveting way. In verse 39, a Roman centurion 
cynical, seen thousands of these crucifixions, probably done many of them himself, says, truly, this was the Son of God. This is the only time, this is the first time that any human being recognized this truth in the Gospel of Mark. At the foot of the cross, at the death of Jesus, revealed to be the Savior of the world. We are going to end our service tonight, and we, as Adam says, we're going to leave in silence, not because we are mourning, but because in a world like ours where we're just instantly distracted from things that matter most by things that matter least, we need to at least spend a few moments really thinking about this. So as the choir comes up to sing in a moment and we leave in silence, I hope if you're a regular tender, you're getting used to that. That's a good thing because there's so much noise in our world that takes us away from pondering what we're thinking about tonight. Be interesting thought experiment to ask people in your life, why is it Good Friday? And see if they can tell you why. Verse 39 of Mark 15 tells us, because this truly was the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord, as we think about this moment in history, when the Son of God took on the sin of man, when the prince of life tasted of death, when the Alpha and Omega came to an end on our behalf, it is mind-blowing. Father, that the, the, the veil in the Holy of Holies was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying that the way is now clear. The thing that once blocked humanity from you has been removed. That is our sin. It is no longer held against us because of what Christ has done. Father, we rejoice in that. And if there is anyone here that is still blocked from you because of sin, Lord, we pray that they would know that that sin has been removed because of the work of Christ in their place on that cross. Father, truly, this Friday is good because the sacrifice for sin had been paid by Jesus himself. We could not have done it. So you sent your son who could. And we give all praise and glory to his name. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.